I didn't even equate ag tech with the venture capital and the transformation or the, the job that I'm doing now. Yeah, I mean, you know, so you're talking about kind of when you set the company up from university, kind of well, well, how many years ago was that? That's um, must have been 89 or 90. Right, wow. Probably go, no. back the, go back to the registration records for ag tech proprietary method. I'll be proved right or wrong, but I was only at university for five years, so that's in that window. Great. Okay. Oh, wow. And uh, so, tell me a little bit about you know some you know before you got to where you are now. You were you know, interesting journey. I think from law there was some uh, uh, management consulting. You spent some time with Virgin Music. Just just run through the yeah, kind sure. of journey to to where you get to now. Is it? So the first big step out of the rural area, to town of eight hundred people, Freeling, was to the big city of Adelaide, and the the next big step from there was to study in England. I think that's when I realised there was a broader world out there beyond you know, farming and uh, the, the district I'd grown up in. And I'm um, very excited about that. I did some management consulting from there into a fintech startup, <coughs> excuse me, a company called AccuCard, where I was one of the early employees. And um, look, we sold that relatively quickly to Lloyd's TSB and that, that journey of being venture capital-backed and disruptor technology companies certainly caught my attention. I have to say the, the bit about that, that that I wasn't sure about is the first product, this fintech business, was a credit card. I wasn't sure the world needed more credit cards, but that was early days. And then from there, I returned to Australia, dabbling in a few other tech or early stage businesses and settled in a buyout. Um, one was a, a business owned by the, the family office of the private equity house of Brett Blundy. That was the Virgin Music Group, where I was the... Chief Marketing Officer, a great job, 38% of Australia's music. And from there into another passion, which is barbecuing, where uh, I led the buyout as a young man of uh, barbecues galore, which was NASDAQ listed. Um, and a buyout house in Australia was on that journey with me. And in the end, I stayed on in that business for a while, but joined um, uh, the buyout firm after a couple of years in that role. And um, that's when I switched to call it the dark side investing. Married a Dutch woman, moved to the Netherlands, wanted to get closer to impact and closer to entrepreneurs and tech. And as I joined Rabobank as the deputy head of their private equity group, that was my focus. And that's a big division, you know, just under $2 billion of investments across many classes, world's largest food and egg bank. And that's when all of these worlds came together. That's when the concept of doing food and agriculture, reconnecting with farmers, the impact of what would happen in food and ag if we improved it and the desperate statistical, for us, we saw a clear statistical case, well, a reasonable statistical case for why we were going to need innovation to create a safer, more secure, more sustainable food system. And we presented that data in, gosh, I think the first time was April 12 um, to the Rabobank board. And alongside it was the thesis that every other major chunk of GDP had been transformed by a venture capital-backed uh, tech transformation. Um, and we thought that food and ag was next, not either because it was going to happen anyway or because there was this need for change. So two pillars that complement each other, but you could believe either of them um, and still get the same answer, which is you should do this. And thankfully, Rabobank and Fidelity were our initial backers who did do it. And that's how we got here. 
Amazing, amazing. Tell me though, you spoke about meeting your wife and coming. Where, where did you meet your wife, for instance? And then what? what, what, what uh... I met her in Chile before I started the management consulting job, just at a language course while backpacking. Right. And wow. then we wow. bumped back into each other two more times around the world. She was working for the World Bank, passionate about um, the early stages of carbon trading there, um, pre when it was. Uh, uh, properly legislated and legitimate. So I think the first fund out of the World Bank, she was a team member of that. And um, she moved around a bit and I moved around a bit and then we found each other again in London several years later. And she came to Sydney with me and then talked me into coming here to Amsterdam. Amazing. I love some of, you know, how how the jigsaw of life, for instance. And, uh, you know, I know Rabobank, they're called like the Farmers Bank, aren't they, really? You know, did, did you feel... Like going to Rabobank and having the heavy influence in agriculture at that time really kind of shaped, you know, that thesis and that understanding. I'm wondering if you were somewhere else, yeah, no, I, I work somewhere else, would you have ended up in this part? I, I wish I could say that I would have found food and ag tech anyway. The the intuition I had was that clean tech was going to be the go. Um, and in actual fact, as part of the job with Rabobank, I was going to be supervising two separate clean tech funds, one project equity and one venture capital. And uh, that, that was my belief. And that's where I thought my attention was going to be turning as I, as I departed from later stage investing and moved into impact. Um, and, of course, I arrived at the world's largest food and ag bank and this flood of memories of being on the farm, of the plight of the farmer, and the numbers start coming in. Rabobank's got 90 food and agriculture research people, so not equity analysts, research people, which I think is the second largest research group in the world after the FAO. I think it's bigger than the USDA or maybe it's smaller. It's third largest, but it's in that magnitude, right, of pure research people focused on food and ag. And um, with with the data set that was available and the relationships, we pivoted very quickly from clean tech to food and ag tech. And, and this was around about the same time that the global financial crisis and the debt sets was underway. So it was an easy time to step away from Gen 1 clean tech. It was so capital intensive. It got punished in that um, uh, first, uh, in that debt crisis. And so, you know, we were also caught with an opportunity, um, some allocated funds to venture capital and impact where we could go back to the bank and say, well, it's great that you're interested in clean tech, but isn't this closer to your core and an even better idea? And that's how it started. Oh, great. Yeah, absolutely. So so tell me a little bit about, uh, um, tell me a little bit about the, the fund, um, you know, the areas that you specialize in and... Uh, Sure. Yeah, we'll go from there. So from a technology perspective, two technology pillars, um, digital and biotech. Uh, From a value chain perspective, across the value chain, so that's everything from genetics, um, so digital would be bioinformatics, um, and then traditional genetics. Um, Then on, perhaps let's do them separately, digital then moving forward on farm, how the inputs get there, Potentially agronomic advice, although tough area. Lots of fascinating stuff happening as the produce or the um, farming product leaves the farm um, with hedging, insurance, fintech, transparency of pricing, uh, source information, 
um, leveraging additional value from special attributes, be it via regenerative farming or carbon-reduced farming or organic or um, uh, just farmer identity. Um, and then into optimising the production process. As you get closer to the consumer, you get the different delivery logistics models kicking in. And, you know, technically we could cover the last mile, but practically, A, other people covered it long ago, and B, I think other funds have a different expertise that probably means that that absolute last mile is better placed in their sweet spot than ours. And then on biotech, similar journey, onto the farm, better ag inputs, microbials, biologicals, or just the next generation of um, more precise, more environmentally friendly, but still effective and low-cost small molecules, onto biotech in the production process, um, specialty ingredients, alternative proteins would slot in there. Um, and then on to medicinal food when you get to the consumer end, but also looking at dietary practices, allergens. Um, and similarly, by the way, um, optimizing digitally for climate footprint of what you eat and allergens and dietary interests also would be a reasonable and, and an interesting area for digital investment for us. So that's a value chain and a technology perspective. Yeah, no, great. Yeah, thank you. And um, and so tell tell me a little bit about like for you that I'm picturing you back in 2012 when you found you know you you were looking at the kind of data you were making the business case for it as it were. Um, tell me a little bit about the, the the kind of why really the you know the impact and um, you know what 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 problems you're really trying to solve as it were. Yeah. Um, in one sense, I opened that presentation the other day and it's stunning how little has changed. But in another sense, a bunch of it was data that we strapped together and concept slides. And so, or data that was 10 years old and we were presenting it in 2012, just sort of hoping that it was still directionally correct, right? Um, so um, you had the basic supply and demand where you had population growth plus people moving to a more animal protein-intense diet, just leading directly to more food than yield improvement could keep up with, right? And then you had the opportunity to bring a huge amount of additional land online, um, but the cost of that versus the waste in the value chain seemed like a poor idea to us. And then you had these headwinds of climate change decreasing yield improvement, as in you still had a steady yield improvement, but it was sub 2.5% per annum, whereas we'd gone through a green revolution where it was really high, really strong, and it's not keeping up. And that trend is remaining the same because we've overused some net short-term, very powerful and helpful chemicals and processes, but in the long term in terms of soil health and productivity, not. Or we'd focused on yield output per square metre instead of productivity, which should include um, all inputs versus outputs and should have an environmental factor, right? And so we looked at all of that and said, this is the problem set. And then in the background, you had a just a pure human health angle, which is what are the causes of death, what are the causes of illness and um, uh, obesity, um, heart disease, um, diabetes were already high up back then. And, um, you know, 10 years on, that data has become 
more substantiated, unfortunately, it's also become more critical. Yeah, absolutely. Have there been any other changes to the business case at all? You know, is there anything else like where we are now, 2022, that you would kind of add on if you were writing that slide deck now? Yeah, there have been quite a few. Um, The massive disruptions to the food system, uh, COVID, and also things like a a war in the Ukraine where 30% of the world's uh, wheat is coming from Russia and Ukraine and a similar percentage of um, uh, farmed oils. Um, And you just see the disruption of having to source from different places, deliver in different formats straight to household, or just take out in a step such a huge chunk of the food system and you realise it's time to be more nimble. Um, And if I'd known that in advance, we could have invested. It was difficult investing in optimising the middle of the value chain just three years ago, just two and a half years ago, whereas now it's opened up. Um, Traditional players running on thin margin, not wanting to digitalise but not wanting to change anything, are now very keen to change. Um, So I wish we'd um, backed that thesis heavier earlier. Um, we didn't see alternative proteins coming. Um, we saw people eating more vegetables, um, but we didn't see a sort of meat substitute um, in 2012. I don't think that was in the document. We didn't see a huge lift in indoor farming. Um, uh, so I don't think that was in that document. Um, trying to think of what else is not there. Probably the other big things were there. And directionally, both were there in the sense that we were looking for more efficient ways of farming and we were looking for um, ways where people's diet would be um, or solutions that would provide a more climate-friendly outcome, right? But just interesting where some big things popped up. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And for you, though, like in terms of being an impact investor, um, how different is that? You know, I mean, you've been on other sides of the fence and been involved with lots of different industries. What, 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 you know, you do this day to day now, for instance. Yeah. Talk to me yeah. a little bit about the resonation of, you know, what. what, what so, um, we look at Ellen Terra, we're very careful um, in, uh, in how we also uh, even position ourselves as an impact investor. We, we think that if you're investing in food and agriculture, I, everything you do, should be better for the environment and better for people's health. And that's not something to, you don't have to sacrifice anything for that. In fact, it's common sense, right? And so we have to back companies that are going to deliver a good financial return to our investors. We could be a not-for-profit, but we're not. So um, we've, as one of the pioneers, I think it's vitally important that we deliver returns and therefore keep this dream but also the solutions open and broaden this investment base. So for-profit is really important to our impact thesis, right? And along the way, we just wouldn't do anything that's harmful. In fact, the more it can address issues like climate change or obesity or uh, general nutrition, it's just a better investment. And it's a lot, a lot more fun to work on and you get a lot more energised teams and you recruit people much faster. And there's a whole bunch of other benefits hanging off the edge that I think I didn't I didn't foresee that in 2012. I didn't realise the number of the younger generation that would just jump onto these opportunities as an alternative to being an investment banker or a management consultant or having perhaps a higher salary. So that's been also another surprise. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And... Um... 
And that's great. That's great. And tell me a little bit about the um, look back in 2012. This would you would have been one of the first funds, right? Well, we didn't right? have the fund in 2012. We, we first presented it then, right? Yeah, yeah. And and okay. um, it took a full two years before it's January 14 before we uh, actually can put up a banner or a website that says Antera, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, there's a gap between a conceptual document and uh, first day of trading, so to speak. Right. Tell me, though, on that journey from 12 with the idea and the thesis to now, what, what has been the most difficult or the most challenging aspect of that whole journey? God, there's been so many challenges. Um, so when we first started, we uh, were coming out of the Netherlands, uh, the initial cornerstone piece from uh, uh, Rabobank, Global Bank, but you know, well and truly Dutch in its core, we had an initial um, prof- preferred Benelux focus from that investor with Fidelity interested in global, you know, it was at the initial fund 50 million. Um, we got the first data from AgFunder, the first publisher of data at the end, sometime in 2014. The global market for food and ag tech investing, according to the data they had that year, was 360 million. We had a 20% global market share with a regional focus, right? Um, and that's a disastrous strategy. And our early investments, we, we were struggling to find really good, innovative, transformative companies with great entrepreneurs. It's not surprising when you realise that we were wandering around the place with 20% market share in a market with 1% global market share. We were, we were 20, 20, uh, 20 times bigger than the market and, um, you know, quickly set up a US office. Also, you couldn't apply the traditional rules of venture capital because there wasn't a vibrant set of entrepreneurs. So you were either backing entrepreneurs with no context in food and ag or people with a huge food and ag context but no experience in high-growth venture tech disruption. Um, And, you know, both of those things have matured beautifully. We now have top-tier entrepreneurs that understand our ecosystem or you can so much better put together teams that combine both. And the funding base, I mean, we were the lead investor in everything we did almost and... You know, if you're not a very big fund, that's a precarious position to be in. The business is doing brilliantly but not might want bridge funding and everyone just turns and looks at person in one seat. That's that's not, even with a great company, that's not a great feeling, right, because you just want that depth of uh, capital but you also want that depth of experience in the board so that different experienced team members come up with different solutions. That's blossomed. I mean, there's not only several strong food and ag tech funds, but there's also a lot of generalists with really complementary skills that have come into our market. Great. Yeah, it's been some journey, isn't it? It really has yes. been. So t- tell me a little bit around, um, you know, the support, um, you help entrepreneurs and the work that you do. You know, clearly you're investing, but you're investing so early, right? Um, it's, it's how, how do you help the companies on the trajectory? Um, so one of the big benefits of being a specialist fund is that uh, we have a wealth of data on many of these aspects of the agricultural and food system. We have sea level relationships after this many years with, with just about all of the big food and agriculture companies. We also know a lot of their former employees and people that are just passionate about changing our food system and tech technology leaders in other sectors that are dabbling in our sector. So you bring all those 
Uh, you bring that knowledge and those people together to help the company. And you know, broadly speaking, two ways, decrease risk by providing some insight and hopefully increase revenue by um, introducing some great leads, which you can start doing during due diligence, hopefully. And, and you know, finally, there's the job that the traditional VC does, which is good board governance, access to capital, access to other investors, just help with recruiting, technology network, right? So it's traditional VC plus the deep context. Yeah. Yeah, got it. I wasn't sure if you sit on, but you you take kind of broad positions of the portfolio companies yourself, actually. Um, yeah, no, we do. Um, we're on the board or in the boardroom as an observer, I think, for every company in our portfolio. Yeah, okay. All right, no, great. Absolutely. And um, so when we think about the future and we think about the challenges out there, right, with the, you know, we've, we've outlined some real challenges for the food uh, for the climate, for the environment, what, what kind of impact do you think AgTech can have, like longer term? You know, when it comes to reversing some of those trends, as it were. Yeah, I, mean, I think it's the, I think it's the single biggest opportunity we have. Transfer of best practice in food and agriculture is not going to get us anywhere, right? That will get us more calories, but the way we've been producing those calories and the sheer nature of those calories, like it too much corn. We could do with less soy, and um, uh, it, this is not the answer. We need more nutritious food grown in a more sustainable way, taking into account all productivity, including impact on the environment. And so, that solution is going to come from everything from better genetics, be it climate resistant or just healthier, um, to uh, better ag inputs, more environmentally friendly, more effective, more targeted. Um, to um, more efficient through the value chain, less waste, to allowing people to understand um, their own needs from a dietary nutrition perspective, perhaps tailored to the individual, perhaps tailored to taste, um, but hopefully with the right information available and a fun interface, something that our children really engage on uh, in, both in terms of their own health but also their, their own carbon footprint. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The question is, do we have enough time, basically? Um, I mean, it feels critical right now. Um, it feels more critical now than it has in any other time when I've been on this journey and I've been on this earth. So to that extent, it feels dangerous. Do I have faith in um, innovation? Yes. So I think we'll get there. But I think we're already leaving a pretty dark mark that will at least make the immediate next generation um unfortunately i don't think they're going to have quite the glory run that uh, my wife and i had but i don't think we're going to leave them without a solution and i think technology is going to be a critical part of it yeah yeah great yeah have you seen a, a change over those you know the last 10 years when you think about some of the big players out there the big strategics that yeah. have got the footprint. Have you really seen much of a different attitude towards embracing innovation from, from these guys? But innovation, 100%. I mean, they've gone from, you know, looking at our, our PowerPoint deck, genuinely looking us in the eye if we were lucky enough to organise a meeting and genuinely saying, interesting, but with absolutely no follow-up. 
<laughs> I mean, follow up email barely responded to, gets kicked down the can five times until somebody maybe takes a cursory phone call out of politeness after having you know met with the CEO and a, a board member and maybe the head of sustainability if they had one back then, um, or maybe the head of uh, innovation. Um, now I think all of the food and agriculture majors have an innovation strategy, an open innovation strategy, a um, a presence at these major conferences, an interest in how to work with entrepreneurs, a respect for the fact that entrepreneurs might disrupt uh, what they're doing. Um, and um, in terms of hard changes, though, I think we have to be realistic. We have not seen that yet. Right? We have not seen the ag tech or food tech, maybe in food tech more, um, definitely in food tech more, companies that are just truly disrupted, Right. In ag tech, we see the beginnings, these companies both raising large amounts of capital and starting to really bite the heels of the majors, but not transformative yet. And in food tech, look, if you count last mile delivery, if you count the fact that they all of this food made it to homes during COVID, well, that's a major disruption. And e-commerce, a little bit, um, what's the right word, incremental as opposed to transformative, but it's definitely a change that's, bounced forward 15-minute delivery. If you think that's a sustainable development or not, I'm not sure, but certainly a massive convenience one. So a bit more evidence and a lot more um, equity capital both raised and returned to investors later down the value chain so far. Yeah, yeah. And, and what are your thoughts on AgTech for that in terms of, you know, the next, you know, well, when you look at the landscape for AgTech now, for instance, yeah. Well, what's what's your view in terms of um, the future for some of these early stage companies and what they can expect? So um, the attention is increasingly upstream. The problems are more difficult. Um, the process is a smidgen slower. That creates, um, I think, once again, an important role for the specialist but also some fascinating opportunities. And let's face it, entrepreneurs, the private equity industry took a while to work its way to more problematic cyclical areas. I mean, they they wouldn't even touch luxury goods 10 years ago, and now they own a big chunk of luxury goods, right? Um, And I think we're going to see them moving, and they've also gone massively into uh, software generally. So I think we're going to see the flow of capital. I also think we're going to see the successes financially, and um, uh, that's going to come, hopefully, with a tremendous positive impact. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's great. No, thank you. And, and what do you think, like, the, you know, what's great working with these early stage companies, right? The mission and the heart and the teams coming together. There's just nothing like it. It's just like, um, it's just quite unique, isn't it? Um, it feels like that. What, what, what are the, cha- the biggest challenges these companies face right now in taking that step, would you say? Um, in food tech and ag tech or just generally? Yeah. No, food tech and ag tech. Um, simple, powerful, well-communicated value proposition. I think we still often see technologies looking for a solution or brilliant technologies that aren't quite immediately actionable for the user. I think that's most acute on farm where a brilliant amount of data and a little bit of advice 
is not yet a tremendous and obvious return on investment for the farmer. Um, so it's just that tipping point of when either the answer is there but it's not communicated in an actionable enough way or the answer is not quite accurate enough to be truly actionable for the right outcome. I think that's a major focus area um, or a, a, it's a major point that we continually see being a problem in food now. Um, I think it's a good enough pausing point. I mean, the rest of it becomes quite generic. You want great teams addressing high growth areas with capital efficient businesses. I mean, this stuff in any venture capitalist could say. Yeah, yeah, great stuff. Thank you. Uh, listen, that's great. I've just got a few um, quick fire questions for you just to uh, finish off with. Um, just some great advice you've received. Um, I think I was early in my investing career when uh, I was, and I was struggling with the breadth of opportunities that we were looking at at a generous firm. And it just wasn't capturing my attention with the late nights. And I had a chat to a mentor about just getting back to what I'm actually passionate about. And I think, uh, of course, there are moments when you have to deliver food on the table and there are moments where you have to make sacrifices, but keeping close to your core and keeping to where your passion is is a, uh, a tremendous way to enjoy the days, even when some of them are tough. <laughs> so that's the best advice. Great, great, great. Um, what about a leader um, you've been inspired by? Um, I've been around some great leaders because I chose to enter a good chunk of my working life as an investor. Of It's often been a CEO that, that we're advising or watching other great board members. I think that stepping back, um, barbecues galore days, there was a mentor, part-time um, executive chairman, Jonathan Pinshaw, who'd been a pioneer in retail in Australia on several major listed boards, but just a very thoughtful person who could lift the conversation to 40,000 feet, but he could also bring practical advice to me then in a leadership position in the company on how to better manage the team, how to communicate clearly, and just a very uh, gentle and endearing person, but absolutely firm. Like Tough news was always capable of being communicated. Yeah. Okay, great. And... Um... How much of you know? Where did that inspiration? You know, working with that and seeing some of those qualities. What, what were you able to kind of take from that in your own career? Oh gosh, hopefully um, a chunk of it. I mean, I'm doing something I'm passionate about. Um, on the Jonathan Pinchel side, I do try to be crystal clear with advice, but I try about my opinion, um, but I try to couch it in a way that. Um, is respectful, structured, leaves whoever I'm working with plenty of room to grow and make their own conclusion. Um, and um, I try to be able to move from the detail but back up to the 40,000 feet and see the bigger picture. So yeah. I, I like to think I've applied all of it if, where I can. Yeah. Okay. It's a tough – if you want to be as good as some of these people that I've bumped into, that's, that, that's a very tough ask. But uh, it's nice to reference back to your best experience with good people. Yeah. Okay. And what causes you stress and how do you switch off from it? Stress. Um, it's always stressful when you're backing venture back, early stage cash flow negative businesses, when they're close to not having capital at the time they need it, either because of a shock or a delayed financing, that's a sleepless night. 
it happens actually to even sometimes the best of companies, but it, uh, it causes stress, no doubt. I think the other thing is you, know, you do accidentally end up in caustic situations and that is uh, it's so draining. So I do have a policy of not purposely entering any caustic relationships. If I see shareholder fights, management team fights, I'm past that. I, I don't want to push through it because I think it damages whole organisations, but I still accidentally sometimes end up in the odd one. Yeah, and how, how do you switch off from, from that? What's... Uh... Favourite uh, things? Barbecues. Family, and barbecuing and surfing. <laughs> where, where in the Netherlands, I don't get to go surfing very often, but uh, at least barbecuing and surfing are close. Sorry, barbecuing and family are close. Okay, cool. I just wondered, like, on your personal life, I'm just picturing you just at a weekend. I see you at the conferences. You're so high energy and uh, excitable, enthusiastic. And is, it, is that you, like, weekends as well? Yes, there's a collapsing point as well where <laughs> I can be spectacularly lazy if there's an opportunity to um, watch a good film with uh, the family. Um, so, and the weekends I can boost from the same level of energy and 10 things in a day to just absolutely stop. Um, so perhaps you don't see the 100% stop at the conference that happens uh, at the end of the day when I collapse. Yeah, great. And um, and what, what do you think, what, what do you enjoy most, the single best thing about your job? Oh, working with young people who believe in technology with a big vision, that's just extraordinary. And when that big vision is not just about disrupting a generic part of our lives, but it's actually improving our food system, and then I think I'm the luckiest, uh, the best job in the world. Yeah, amazing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, I can relate to that. And uh, Adam, listen, it's been a, a wonderful conversation. Thanks so much for coming on today. Uh, thanks very much for taking the time. Enjoyed talking with you, Simon, and uh, all the very best. Thank you very much. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Adam. Thank you very much. Good. Um, um, only, only thing to take out is the reference to fun too. Yeah. Um, um, even though I answered it perfectly well, I would, wouldn't mind if you just deleted it because... Um, we sort of went through the process of three lifts in the fund. So if we just stop at that sentence, it looks like I had fund one in 2014 and then fund two eight years later, right? Yeah. So um, if you can delete that question and answer, we, as far as I'm concerned, we're good to go. Yeah, we're good. You know what, though? I was on the website, and I'm sure I read something about a fund last year. Oh, in June. You've got something. You're right. You're right. We announced a preliminary closing last yeah. July. Yeah, yeah, that's it. It's on your website. Oh, that's my fault. Um, I think. Ah, by the way, I've got no problem taking it out. It's no, no. Yeah, because I didn't explain it properly in the answer, and because I actually contradict something on our website, all the more reason to take it out. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I um, we were sprinting towards. Um, making the final fund announcement at uh, the San Francisco conference. And we ended up that Friday before one signature short. Oh, right. And then that signature took, yeah, it actually took all of that week. But once it had taken past Tuesday, I, I stopped chasing it, right? Yeah. Um, but we closed at 260 and our, our target was 175, which is what we got to um, July last year. Between you and I, I forgot that we announced that. And um, then uh, cap was 230. So to be above our cap and a uh, great set of investors, yeah, I'm absolutely stoked. But yeah. um, 
Yeah, I think, um, yeah, no, wonderful. Yeah. Congratulations. That's but all, all, considering I, I didn't just then, I didn't just stuff up my answer, but my answer is just wrong, all the more reason to cut out. Yeah, <laughs> that's, 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 don't worry. That's fine. That's yeah. no hassle at all. Yeah. Uh, I don't think it 